Good morning. Good. Uh, what is it? Tuesday morning. So um, we're going to be talking about my favorite little tagline. Future quality is risk. But really, I'm going to be talking about it from two perspectives. I'm going to be talking about it from the quality side for a couple minutes. And then I'm going to be talking about it from the risk side of the equation. And then we're going to try to draw some parallels, some contrasts, and some opportunities. So that's basically what we're, what we're going to talk about this morning. So that's my picture. Uh, only thing missing probably is the number across my chest. So uh, anyway, <laughs> that's a little background on who we are. Um, so a little context. Um, got a daughter who just graduated from uni in computer science. Her senior project was this new standard that's coming out called the Artificial Intelligence Risk Management Framework, AI RMF. And when we basically started working on it, it wasn't even out on the street. We got into it about six months early. And a year and a half goes by. And right now, that standard is actually a hub of all U.S. regulations, standards, development. So think of it a hub and spokes. And the federal government, actually the White House, actually issued an order, executive order, uh, about a month ago saying this standard is going to be, uh, or actually it's a guideline, is going to be the hub for all of our development. So that's an important piece of information as we go through this talk, because our examples are going to be AI-based. Why? Because all AI globally is risk-based. So let's jump into it and hopefully have some fun. Uh, we've got 31 slides, so we'll have about 5, 10, 15 minutes for Q&A. Fred's got some zingers to land my way, and that's fine. Fred's constraint always is, okay, show me the solution. Uh, my constraint is, show me the problem, and I'll ask the question. So let's dive into it. Here's the presentation outline. I'm going to start with a quality story. Then I'm going to talk about how uncertainty is sort of the sign of the times. We're going to discuss what is risk, which is what I promised early on. And then I'm going to finish with a risk story. And I'm going to give you some recommendations as to your future in reliability, quality, engineering. So let's dive into it. First, a quality story. Normally, when we think of quality gurus, we think of the original three, Demi Crosby and... Um, um, God, not Fiegenbaum, um, whatever the third one was. But anyway, we think of the three original ones. But about 30 years ago, a professor out of Harvard called David Garvin wrote a, sort of a, an article in Harvard Business Review. And really, this is him, you know, probably 30 years ago. But he wrote this article in Harvard Business Review where he actually looked at quality from an outsider's point of view and said, what are the attributes of quality? And he was a Harvard business prof, and very few people know about him, because most of us think of uh, Jaran Crosby and, and Deming. Those are the original three gurus. Secondary gurus would be Feigenbaum and several others. But David Garvin wrote this article, and it was sort of academic-y again, but he actually developed a quality framework, and he identified eight dimensions or attributes of quality. And the reason I bring them up is I'm going to basically, in the backside of this talk, uh, come up with a risk story. And essentially, I'll give you the, <laughs> the lead. I'll give you the tagline. I'll give you the takeaway. We're in risk where David was 35 years ago meaning lots of questions, few answers. So for the next five, 10 minutes, we're going to talk about his framework and his eight dimensions of quality, one of which, by the way, is reliability. So let's dive into it. The first quality attribute, and again, he de defined eight of them, was performance. Now, I'm basically going to come up with an example. 
of each one of these eight attributes of quality. And I'm going to be using an F1 car, Formula One racing machine. Uh, I guess it's a car, but it's more like hmm, high-tech racing machine. Um, know a little bit about F1, know a little bit about racing, um, know a whole bunch about the type of um, world-class um, you know, engineering that goes into it. So anyway, I'm going to be using that an example, as an example to look at each one of Garvin's eight attributes of quality. So his first one was performance. So what is performance? Is performance is basically how well something does against some metric. Uh, so a couple, two things. One is you have to have a metric against you're going to be measuring against, and then you're measuring what something does. Now, why does it matter? Well, it's used for excellence. It's used for baselining. It's used for targeting. In racing, uh, basically, it's the speed you go and the amount of time it takes for you to go around the circuit. That's performance in, M1 in F1 terms. Now, how do you measure it? One is acceleration. Second is time around the circuit. Uh, third is um, top speed, probably. Even though there are governors on the engine, Acceleration is very important. Second quality metric that Garvin came up with was called features. Now, features in M1 machine can be anything from the exhaust system. Why is that important? Because it's a tuned exhaust, uh, probably straight from the engine. <laughs> uh, another might be a spoiler. But anyway, you can get an idea. Uh, features are characteristics or attributes of a product or service. And without those features, you can't really define quality because, you know, that actually is what we're looking at. That's what's important. That's the critical few from the insignificant many. On a drawing, for example, you'll know, engineering drawing, I should say, you'll know what the features are because those features are what's communicated to the supplier in terms of developing a FEMA, developing an SPC chart, uh, or some other type of reliability quality st statistic. So why does it matter? Well, the features are what's critical to the user, customer, or interested party. How do you measure it? Well, there are lots of ways to measure features. I described one. You have something on a drawing that's tagged as a feature, and then that's sent to a supplier, and they give you, a, give you, the customer, or the engineer, quality engineer, an SPC chart showing that that particular feature is in control, capable of meeting your requirements, specifications, and improving, meaning minimizing variation at that feature target. Uh, I'm becoming a little bit geeky, but I'll try to stay up a little bit. So another attribute that um, Garvin defined was reliability, something close to our hearts. Now, reliability can be reliability in a part on an F1 machine. It could be the reliability of an engine. You know, how many races can that engine survive? So reliability, essentially. And again, I'm not going to be looking at it from the exactness of Fred, Chris, uh, or Carl. I'm just going to talk about it more in terms of the layperson. Uh, it's interesting. Many years ago, I used to use the term layman. Well, now uh, it's like lay person. But anyway, reliability. Um, essentially, you could think, I think of reliability as long-term uh, quality. And again, we look at the exhaust or the engine and you say, is the engine reliable? Basically, can we use it for different races in different climates? and for different conditions. Why does it matter? Well, it defines the value of the life cycle of product. How do you measure it? Uh, I'm probably put this up, meantime, MTBFs, meantime, between failures, you know, something that I use, others don't. But anyway, that's one of the metrics. So Garvin, and just to provide some context, was really ahead of his time. A fourth attribute he defined in terms of quality was conformance. Now, conformance 
Here we have basically a roll cage or a roll bar. Uh, really important. Why do we call it that? Because an F1 machine going 200 miles an hour, 300 kilometers per hour, if that machine goes airborne and flips, we want a safe driver. So in front of the driver is that little circular area, and that's basically the roll bar. And we want that roll bar to conform to safety requirements, safety specifications. So conformance is binary, yes or no. It conforms or it doesn't conform, zero, one. So a roll cage would be an example where we want a safe roll bar. We do not want an unsafe roll cage. So why does conformance matter? Well, for a couple of reasons. One, it's measurable. Two, it's accountable. Three, it basically shows that a company can be improving. So how do you measure a conformance? Well, it's binary, yes, no. And quite often, we see that with shell requirements, shell requirements in a standard, a regulation, or specification. The fifth attribute that Garvin defined, and by the way, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to do the same thing for risk, define attributes of risk. And our story, by the way, well, just keep stay with me if you can. So a fifth attribute is durability. So here we have a tire. It's essentially a tire on the F1 machine, on the F1 racing car. And the question is, we want that thing to be able to last the race. Hopefully, it could be used in multiple races. Also, it has to be the right type of tire. What happens if it rains? Well, we're going to use a tire with more serrated, uh, with more grooves in it. Why? So that it'll basically dispel the, the water. If we're basically in a very hot, dry climate, we want a tire that's uh, not too inflated, uh, and basically smooth. Why? Because it'll grip the surface, the road surface, more. So again, this is another attribute of quality. What is durability? Well, toughness. Uh, the amount we can use. I forgot the S, the E, any <laughs> us. <laughs> so why does it matter? Uh, well, it's a design attribute. It's purpose of use, fitness of use. And how do you measure it? Well, one measure is hours of use. Um. You can think of durability as, again, an, you know, another attribute of quality. So another attribute that Garvin came up with was called serviceability. Well, going back to our example of the F1 racing machine, um, the thing uh, has to do a pit stop. Many of the races in F1 are one in seconds. Now, 20, 30 years ago, uh, when I was in a racing car, <laughs> it wasn't mine. It was my significant other. Um, she was a racer, probably number two in the country after Janet Guthrie. And anyway, she took me in a racing car. It was a 911. And it was interesting how these cars are built and, you know, how they race. But anyway, um, in F1 racing 30 years ago, a pit stop could be 30, 40 seconds. Think about it, 30, 40 seconds to change four wheels, repair parts, uh, fuel the engine, 30 seconds. Now they're looking at two and a half seconds. Why? Because that difference between 30 seconds and two and a half seconds is 27 and a half. That's how much many races are won or lost on F1. So anyway, that's a critical attribute. So serviceability, the amount of time it takes to fix something, is a critical attribute, quality attribute. So what is it? Ease of use, ease of repair, ease of service. Why does it matter? Well, in F1, it's basically the interval between winning or losing. So how do you measure it? Well, turnaround time is one way. So the seventh attribute he talked about was aesthetics. So I'm going to probably use this example in the next two slides. In the back of the spoiler of this race car, 
you've got Alfa Romeo, obviously one of the teams that's in F1. So there are 10 teams in F1. Alpha is one of the 10 teams. And of course, right across the spoiler, it's that horizontal thing that you see in the back. And the purpose is to push the rear end down. The airflow goes through the front of the machine. And as the airflow follows the curvature of the car, the spoiler, which is a flat piece, pushes the rear end down. When it pushes the rear end down, there's more traction against the racing surface, against the ground. So here we have aesthetics. Alpha decided to put their logo right on the back, and frankly, most, most people do. So what is it? Well, it's a design. It could be a look. It could be a look and feel. But it also can you know, have a functional purpose. Uh, why it matters? Well, in this case, they have Alfa Romeo as a differentiator and as product appeal. Also, it uh, tends to make sure that the race car has, um, what do you want to call it, uh, unique and innovative features. Now, every year, uh, as I follow F1, or you can see that in sports too, there are new moves in basketball, there are new types of shooters, there are new rules. Um, uh, just somebody came to play basketball this year who is seven foot four from south of France. Uh, kid, phenomenally good. But again, he set new rules for the profession of pro basketball. And we can see that in almost every profession, especially these days. Things are changing and they're changing rapidly. So an aesthetic basically is a unique or an innovative feature. So basically perceived quality. Perceived quality is again the same Alfa Romeo um, branding that we saw in the spoiler. It's used for IP branding. Why it matters is the value add profitability margin provides additional margin. And also for a company, it increases, enhances brand equity. So with that, I'm going to sort of move to the second part of our talk, which is we're living in changing times. So about a week ago, top article in USA Today showed this clock. It's called the Doomsday Clock. It was top of the article in the USA Today. Now, one week ago in the LA Times, we saw this. SoCal, Southern California sees 2,000-year storms within weeks. A week goes by, meaning this week. Actually, a week and a half goes by. And now we're seeing two more thousand-year storms. So, you know, we're sort of an analytical slash scientific audience. If two weeks ago we saw 2,000-year storms, and this week we've got two more thousand-year storms, gee, I wonder if our metric is really right saying we have thousand-year storms. Maybe these are yearly storms that we're going to be seeing. Anyway, the point of both of these is we have the left, the doomsday clock, <laughs> and on the right, we have thousand-year storms, four of them in two weeks. Hmm. I guess the point of the slide is we're reaching a new risky time. Uh, I call this the time of VUCA, uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So now I'm going to be talking about risk because essentially the takeaway from this is we're living in risky times. So I'm going to be using AI as an example for risk. Why? Because that's basically what we're doing is we're developing AI products and specifically in AI trust, which is really the hottest area right now in AI. So, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll have an interesting discussion. Uh, Fred will be looking for answers. I'll be basically asking questions. So anyway, this is the GDP of the U.S. over the next couple of years. It's a little hard to see, but essentially you can see it's, you know, we're in pretty good shape now. And here's one size of the global market. So the global market for the web 
in 2030, it's going to be 81 billion. Okay, not too bad. It's a good-sized market. And by the way, that's the global market for the web. The global market for AI is going to be 1.8 trillion, probably, you know, what, 20 times bigger than the web market. And some project that it's going to be uh, 15.7 trillion, which is almost half of the U.S. economy. So just to provide some context, AI and the investment of AI is outpacing by a factor of 20 on the low side to maybe 100 to 200 times bigger than the web market in six years. Think about that. This is how big the AI market is going projected to be. Again, we don't know. The two numbers on the right, one is from a website called Grandview, and the lower number, the higher number, is from PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Um, again, whether you take the low number or the high number, the bottom line is AI is going to be a big deal. And I'm going to be talking about AI risk for the next rest of the talk. So what's risk? Essentially, and if you've been through this talk before, you've probably seen this slide. Um, what we have here on the horizontal axis is time on vertical VUCA, volatility, complexity, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And in the horizontal axis, we have the metrics that most companies are using, lean, six sigma, reliability, uh, all that stuff. And the assumption to reliability, the assumption of quality, the assumption of lean is stable, capable, and improving processes, minimize variation. But again, that's an in, that's an that's an in-house metric. What's happening around us is this: we have external disruption impinging upon companies. They're also fundamentally changing internal processes. It's outside in, and when you can think of a gap between the way companies are running their processes, that's the horizontal line. Again, that's their internal business model. And we have that black solid line, external disruption coming in. We have a gap there, and that gap is creating greater risks in reliability, quality, cost schedule, scope, and technology. And that gap is risk. So what I'm going to do for the next couple slides is provide a couple context, provide some context, provide some definitions, and basically launch into attributes of risk, specifically from the perspective of AI. So what is risk? Here's one definition from Institute of Internal Auditors, the IIA. Um, this is critical because this is what we call an objective-centric definition of risk, possibility of an event occurring that will impact the achievement of objectives, not the objective. It's the achievement of the objective. So that's a critical definition. Second definition is from Prince too. Prince is basically a... Uh, UK equivalent of PMI's definition, PMI, uh, Project Management Institute, and Prince too, is this is their definition of risk. I'm not going to read it. But again, the thing that's probably important about this definition is that it has two elements. The probability, another way to say that, likelihood of a perceived threat or opportunity, and the magnitude. Another way to think about that is likelihood and consequence. Uh, probability is the same as likelihood on one side of the axis. Magnitude or severity or consequence are equivalent. The other part of this definition that you may want to look at is there's two pieces of that. 
probability of perceived threat. Again, the downside and the opportunity, which is the upside. Now, another definition of risk, a couple other definitions. One is from the original standard. This is a precursor. There. This is AS, AS4360 is the pre predecessor of ISO 31000. ISO 31000 is the international standard for risk management. And AS New Zealand 4360 is a predecessor. This is what we started with 30 years ago when we started doing risk management. Um, anyway, take a look at it. The things that you can, that are important are, again, consequences and likelihood. Those are the two vectors that are important for defining risk. Another one, when you look at the FAA one, is, again, more event-based, a situation or circumstance that creates uncertainties about achieving programmatic objectives. Achieving is the critical word. Nice little slide. I should have put that. The other definition that is used so let's talk about this. The number of definitions of risk in ISO, just in ISO, is probably 20, maybe more, 30. Anyway, there are a lot of them. Uh, when you go into almost every vertical sector, sec what we call them sectoral areas. So I'm seeing this in AI, for example. So let's take AI. Um, the Europeans under the AI Act have eight areas that will be impacted. One is critical infrastructure. If you look at critical infrastructure, one area of critical infrastructure is energy. If you look at energy, you have uh, a lot of a lot of what we call sub areas in energy. You have um, generation, you have transmission, you then you have use. So just take a subset of generation. In generation, you have uh, nuclear. Under nuclear, you probably have five different areas, fusion, fission, SMRs, whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, you have coal, you have nu uh, natural gas, you have all types of generation. So if you just simply look at one area, one sub, 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 sub area of AI influence, every one of those areas under generation, power generation, is going to have their own taxonomy, which means risk structure. And then you're going to have their own regulation. And all that regulation in that sub, 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 sub area for AI use will have their own definition of risk. That's one big problem. Now, in some ways, that's very good because when you're looking at something as consequential as AI and autonomous decision-making, when you're talking about critical infrastructure, uh, it all comes down to risk. You don't want someone, state actor, activist, uh, disrupting your system. At best, basically, they limit your power for maybe a microsecond. At worst, they control your system and uh, uh, and um, uh, essentially uh, disrupt water or disrupt something else. But anyway, the point to take away is there are a lot of different definitions and taxonomies that are tailored to the verticals, meaning to the sectors. And each one of those within the sector makes sense. But when you take that definition out of that sector out of that vertical, out of that area, and you try to ap apply it across sectors, it becomes very, very difficult. So what happens is, here's one definition. I want to go back to this definition. COSO is really the financial definition of risk. COSO, this definition of risk, is actually statutory. It's a required definition for all financial statements. Again, it doesn't matter if it's in the U.S., or if it's in the UK or in Abu Dhabi, they're all using this definition when they're 
uh, developing their financial statements, looking at their financial controls or their ICFRs. ICFR is internal control over uh, finance. Um, financial reporting, internal, internal control over financial reporting. All of them are using this definition. And that's the takeaway for the last couple slides. Depending upon the vertical you're in, depending upon the sector, depending on the fitness of use or the purpose of use, you're going to have your own taxonomy, meaning structure of risk, and you're going to have your own definition of risk. So back to this cube on the right. And by the way, we, our little company, we trademark our own frameworks. There are common frameworks that the federal government has, but this is the framework that we, COZO, developed. And this is the financial framework that all companies use regardless throughout the world. So on one side of the cube, you have the five elements, control environment, going to monitoring. On the top of the cube, you have operations reporting compliance. You can think of that as GRC, governance, risk, and uh, compliance. And on the right side of the cube, you have the different levels within the organization. Again, this is called the COZO cube. And this basically provides what we would call an integrated definition of risk. Now, fortunately, everyone in the world has adopted this for ICFRs, internal control over financial reporting. But again, if you're in the nuclear business or in the uh, aviation business, your definition and taxonomies of risk is going to be tailored to that vertical. So that's the takeaway. And so here's an ISO definition of risk. <laughs> so ISO 31000 is the international standard for risk management. It's a good, a great standard. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it's based on the uh, New Zealand-Australian standard 4360. And it's reasonably, it's a good definition. When you're talking to people who live and breathe risk, like myself, uh, there's a problem. And the problem is we tend to look at the definitions and basically develop the risk taxonomies and tailor it to the vertical, tailor it to the company, tailor it to the specific industry, tailor it to the culture. Words become important. Words are important. And what we do is we pay attention to how words are put together. This definition of risk is okay. Their definition, ISO's definition of risk is the effect of uncertainty on objectives. The problem is, and this has been a big problem that we've been talking about, I hope they fix this in the next iteration. Um, how <laughs> you cannot really, uncertainty does not impact an objective. It can impact the achievement of the objective, but the objective basically is a piece of paper. You can have all the uncertainty, all the VUCA in the world. It's not going to impact the objective. But the achievement of the objective, yes, it can impact. So if you have uncertainty, you may or may not reach the objective. Um, this is called parsing, parsing the language. Um, what's an example of that? I think a great example of parsing language is, oh, I can give you many examples. I hope this is... We had a president who said, um, I did not have sex with that person. That's an example of parsing. Well, obviously, our president did. But again, when you look at the parsing of sex, or when you look at the parsing of the risk definition, it's very, very critical to make sure that we're talking the same thing. We understand the same thing. And that's why the taxonomy, the structure, the architecture, the design of the language is hugely, hugely important. So um, anyway, 
we can talk about risk-based thinking. There are other things. Uh, ISO never de defined risk-based thinking. Risk-based thinking is pivotal in ISO 9001. If you don't define it, you can't measure it. If you can't measure it, you can't implement it. So what happens is they have a requirement, risk-based thinking, that you can't apply. Why? Because you can't measure somebody's thinking. My tagline is, unless you pass mind reading 101, you can't do anything with it. So for our point of view, to operationalize it, to parse it, to make it operational, we define risk-based thinking as two things, risk-based problem-solving, risk-based decision-making. Why? Because you have an audit trail, you have artifacts, you have assumptions, you have a process, you have outputs. You have all the requirements for risk-based decision for managing risk. So I use that as an example. So here's another thing. Most of us, when we grew up, always thought of risk in terms of downside, downside consequences. So now we have really two definitions of risk, almost in all standards. One is opportunity. The second is downside. So upside risk is opportunity risk. Downside risk is consequence risk. And opportunity risk, you can think of in terms of uh, if you don't take that first step, if you don't take that risk, you can't reach your goal. You can't reach your, your objective. So that's a good definition. Now, there are a couple of risk elements. I'm not going to spend much time on them. But, you know, you can take a look at them. And by the way, uh, Fred, Shendo, used to be a Sendo, and so now we're a Shendo. Uh, <laughs> um, again, rebranding, I guess, or repronunciation. Um, there are other definitions of risk. Um, and I'm going to go through a couple more. There are risk perspectives that are important. Opportunity, consequence, gaps. Now, if you're basically, again, the definition of risk is based on context. If you're managing a project, for example, project has three constraints, cost, schedule, quality. Anytime you have a gap in any one of those, that gap between where you are and where you need to be or where you are and your objective is a risk. It's a risk of not meeting your project schedule, your project cost, your project quality. Holes. If you have holes in an org chart, I'm using that as an example. Uh, if you have a hole in anything, it's a risk. Uh, if you have a piece of metal and you have a cavity, a cavity is a hole. That's going to be a point of possible or potential uh, catastrophe. You know, you're going to have something in that cavity that's going to result in that piece of product failing. All of these things are risks. And it's important to understand that unknowns are risks, constraints, and delays. So I want to go back to my risk story. I started this talk with a story about quality and David Garvin. And this is the sort of the state that we're in right now. And my, my story is really going to focus on this book that I wrote a couple months ago called Trust. Um, the size of the AI market, as you can see, is going to be half of the U.S. economy if you take PwC's estimate in six years. This is the global investment in AI. Huge area. Number one area right now in AI is really uh, trust. This is on the research side. The money side is really the application of AI or the deployment of AI. But in terms of academic research, it's really trust. And, you know, we've got a couple of products in that area. You know, we have a couple, some IP in that area. But a lot of it came out because we wrote this book a couple months ago. And here's our risk story. And here's the challenge. Garvin, David Garvin, 35 years ago, came up with his eight attributes of quality. What are the attributes of risk? 
Uh, do we have durability? Do we have conformance? You know, what's the equivalent of risk? How do we measure it? Why does it matter? How do we operationalize it? Those are the questions. And the essence of the rest of the talk is, in risk, we are in the same place as Garvin was 35 years ago. We have lots of questions, few answers. So I'm gonna use AI as an example. And here's one of the challenges of AI risk. It's really a social technical system. Uh, and we'll talk about that in the next couple of slides. AI is really social. It's got the social element, fairness, equity, transparency, explainability, lots of attributes. And then it's got the technical side. Uh, you can think of the technical side as chat GPTs of databases of <laughs> machine learning. Anyway, there's a lot of technical areas uh, on AI. But what we're really going to be looking at is probably more the social part of AI. So what is AI? It's essentially a the ability of a system to mimic human intelligence. I'm basically going to focus on one part of it, which is autonomous decision-making. You know, it's, I mean, I can pick up my cell phone. Siri's there. I can pick up or I go to my TV set and push in Alexa. Alexa's there probably listening to me 100% of my time. Um, the point is, um, AI is all over. Right now, it's passive. Uh, very, very soon, it's going to become active, meaning active means making autonomous decisions. And what makes autonomous decisions, how do we know that it's transparent, explainable? How do we know what's going on under the hood? That's the challenge. And again, what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do, just like Garvin did 35 years ago, is we're trying to define what are the key attributes of risk in AI or AI risk? So why is autonomous decision-making important? Well, I live in the Northwest. We just got deluged with rain. Nothing like Southern California, but it's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Heat, rain, earthquakes, uh, you name it, things are happening. So let's look at decision-making. We're living in very risky times, uncertain times. So what happens is we need systems to make decisions for us quickly, especially when we have floods or something. And these systems, autonomous systems, are going to start making decisions, autonomous decisions, on, huh, they have a UAV fly over us. They say they have, <laughs> this insurance company is insuring my house. We have 60-foot furs around my house. All of a sudden, my house insurance goes up, not 50%, but 500%. Uh, uh, I need to have an operation. I'm a high risk, an autonomous decision-making system says, nah, Greg, um, I don't think we're going to pay for that. Why? Because you're too old and we'd rather just simply have you blah, blah, blah. Anyway, whatever reason. Let's say that, you know, I live in a zip code, 97202, lots of fir trees. They're going to redline, the autonomous decision-making system is going to redline my entire zip code not based on racial profiling, but on the risk of, of a catastrophe hitting. Like, uh, what are you going to do if there's rain all of a sudden and it hits the entire Southern California coast? Are you going to eliminate all insurance for Southern California, impacting 20 million people? Who knows? But anyway, you get the idea. Autonomous decision-making is going to impact us in a lot of ways. And this is the problem. We do not have a risk system 
for these risk attributes. Now remember, Garvin, 35 years ago, had quality attributes. These are AI risk attributes, explainability. How do you explain what's going on in the system? Trustworthiness, fairness, transparency, robustness, accountability. Every one of those is a risk attribute. In this case, it's particularly focused on AI, artificial intelligence. We don't know how to manage it. We don't know how to uh, come up with metrics for it. We don't even know what's happening under the hood. So I'm going to talk about two of these. I'm going to talk about two trust, two risk attributes, trust and explainability. One is the um, most general AI is black box. We don't know what's going under the hood. We don't know what the engine is. Uh, what we want is logical and fair decision-making. Why it matters? Well, we don't want discrimination or bias, but how do we measure it if it's a black box? Real tough one. Explainability. Um, for AI to be explainable and for us to have a risk attribute, we need to have a white box, something we understand. Uh, why is it important? Well, we need to know how the AI software is deciding. You know, in other words, we need to know how it decides to, to decide, how it makes decision, uh, how it makes decisions. That's why it matters. The question is, how do we measure it? That's the state, that's the bleeding edge right now of risk. Risk is impacting almost all AI decision-making. And we don't know how to develop a taxonomy. We don't know how to come up with regulations. We don't even know how to come up with specifications or guidelines. So here's the takeaways. We've got a couple more slides and we have time for a couple, couple questions. So basically I'm gonna to try to wrap everything up. Um, quality well-defined system, risk, brand new. Um, permacrisis, for example, is the word of the year. Our word is permarisk. Um, we need to see everything now through a lens of risk, both personally in terms of personal problem-solving and decision-making. The bottom line is I think we're all going to become risk managers. So our takeaway tip for you today, add risk to your LinkedIn profile. Learn risk, do risk. It's going to help you in the future. It's going to help you, especially with AI, help you keep your job. Anyway, got some time for questions and comments. Right. I got it. Um, Carl just asked a couple minutes ago when you were going through all of the different ways AI could do this, that, or the other thing. Uh, yep. So so do you think AI will control humans in the future? Sounds like a, a 1960 science fiction movie. Uh, Carl, does Carl have kids? I don't know. But what's the deal with the question? Well, if you have a kid and he or she is spending 80% of his or her time on the smartphone, TikToking or doing whatever, not socializing, not playing sports. They're already controlling us, not controlling us as adults, but controlling the kids. The real question will be, will AI sooner than later control uh, decision-making for critical elements of our life? Yes. Oh. When? Within four years. Well, they already do. I mean, there's study after study showing that uh, was the one from IBM. Um, their AI system can look at a a, a radio or an X-ray of your chest and determine whether or not you have lung cancer, at more <laughs> accurately than a, a doctor can, and yep. more consistently. So, it, at some point, Which, the doctors are going to look at it and go, "Yep, machine's right." <laughs> 
the data shows it. So I'm just going to do, I'm going to go do surgery, treat cancer when the machine made the decision. So that's a form of controlling the person, right? Yep. And by the way, that's a reliability issue. Well, that's what I mean is, is there they actually did the studies, right? They said, yep. all right, we're going to do it this way. We're going to do that. You both measure it and we'll see which one's right. And then they, unfortunately, they had a bunch of people with and without cancer and then they open them up to figure out whether they did or not. But the it, there's more and more of that um, uh, going on. So it, it's, it's to what level of and to degree is the control. Now, back to your example, Greg, it was, you know, kids on online are being controlled. Well, I'm sorry to say that the big three networks in the 60s in the US were controlling us too. We all went out and bought, you know, Captain Crunch. <laughs> you know, marketing has been, they're not AI. It's getting, you know, different. They're doing more and more stuff with it uh, from imagery to, you know, all this other stuff. <clears throat> But that's just been in the works forever since marketing began. You know, so, in, the, in the in the market in the small town, this will make you healthy, and it's you know snake oil that's been going on long before we had computers. So there are a couple of thoughts there. One is marketing is really passive control. Uh, AI, different forms of AI. One, so I'll bring up two. One basically is this autonomous decision-making, which is really black box. We don't know what's going on. Um, it's external to the person. The other one, which is a little bit more 1940-ish, I mean, 1984, is what's happening with these implants. So Palantir, oh, 10, 20 years, 10, 15 years ago, started developing Palantir as a black box uh, company um, basically does DOD dark type stuff, meaning dark defense, Department of Defense type stuff. And they've basically been inserting stuff into people, AI type of things. Uh, they don't want to, they don't talk about it, but if you do a search, a prior art search for for uh, uh, patents, you can see that they've been doing this a long time. Now, Musk last week inserted a device, active device into a person that's electronically linked to an AI device. So the point is, this is 90, 80, uh, 1984. Marketing is very passive. AI decision-making is more active. Now we're actually intruding, putting invasive stuff into people that from a benign point of view, will help people become more mobile. But from an invasive 1984 China type of thing, it can actually control people. So there's a lot going on there. And by the way, we're not discussing it. Palantir has been doing this. Other companies have been doing this. Chinese have been doing this. But now Musk, as of last week, implanted this device and it's got a lot of good uses, but it potentially can be used to control people. Again, it's risk-based. Yeah. So I'm going to come back to you. And I told you before we started, Greg, when we were chatting offline, I had this question for you. It's like, yeah, sure. you got to think of it as you got to you got to think risk, but risk in your title, you know, do risk. Well, what exactly is doing risk look like? Doing risk. From our point of view, so I'm going to share this from the developing, the, the developer's point of view. We want to do a unicorn, billion dollar market cap company. No, no, That's no. What, what do this audience, some of us are quality folks and some are reliability folks and we're in different levels of different organizations. To do risk means what do we do? different than what we're already doing. We're doing FMEAs, we're doing hazard analysis, we're doing uh, strategic planning, we're you know identifying the threats that are coming our way and making more robust systems. I mean, right from the start, you talked about that we typically like a stable system. Well, the world's not stable as yep. much as we'd like it to be. So what do we do different? Within 
your vertical. So I'll be, so you, you just hired us either as developers. So you're hiring us. What's the problem we want to solve? Define the problem for us. How do I understand that gap? And what do I do about that gap? That early slide where you're talking about the, the amount of uncertainty in the world versus what we'd like to do in our production process. I make so, widgets. The first thing is develop a landscape profile in terms of how uncertainty, how things are changing around you. Communicate that to executive management and to the board. One. Two, read your 10Ks, 10Qs. Understand what the organization is looking at. You, if you're an SME or as a sole contributor, you don't have access to the board. Forget about it. You're not going to have zero impact. But at your level, understand where your business model, operational business model, it could be a reliability business model, realize how is that changing and, you know, so you have two lines on the gap on, on that on that slide. One is the exponential and the other is the flat thing. Understand the gaps. Well, that's where you're saying, you know, look at the world through the risk lens. It's basically, yes. you know, looking at, well, the geopolitical changes, the climate changes. The... You, can't, you can't do anything about those. No, Look but at the, it in terms but the, of your business model, what you can impact. Right. But if I'm limited in my supply chain because of disruptions in the supply system or geopolitical system, I can't get the quality, decent parts that I have learned to count on. Now I have three new vendors I got to select. I mean, I look at it as if I'm not preparing myself to look for other alternatives because the supply chain's likely to be disrupted. Um, then I'm playing catch up. I'm in an emergency mode when that happens. Whereas if I anticipate it, then I have at least thought it through and I have options ready to go. And so I think of it as that's the kind of thing we can do if we look at it through a risk lens. Well, what can happen that'll affect me in my reliability role? If I can't get liquid nitrogen to chill my thermal chambers, well, I got to anticipate the process is going to take longer to run that test and, and communicate that to the people that need to know it. But it's, I think what you're, the way I'm interpreting what you're saying is that that camera image of look at it through a risk lens is, well, what happens if the Suez Canal gets closed again? Does that matter to me or not? So I'm looking at it from the boss's point of view. I shared the story earlier. If both of us are thinking the same, one of us is not needed. Okay. And if I'm not being proactive, preventive, predictive, and preemptive in my thinking and my decision making, okay. I mean, again, and this is a problem I have with a lot of engineering professionals is they're tool-oriented. Nobody, frankly, cares about the tool anymore. Okay. it's I know that's... No, that's, I get you. It makes sense. It's We use various tools and methods to accomplish something. It's that, that difference that it makes that matters. It's sort of like achieving the objective matters more than just the risk to the objective. Because I, I agree with you. It's the, the objective is the objective. We can set whatever we want. The objective independent of what, what the world, right? Yes, it's, it's the ability to achieve it that matters. Yeah, the objective is what we're, our goal is. And the objective is what's important to the company. The risks are the hindrances, the obstacles to meeting the goal. If you don't understand the obstacles, meaning the risks, uh, you, you're, not, you're not making good decisions. It comes down to, You've got an objective. Think of constraints, obstacles, gaps, go, got, you know, think of all those things, those words that I used as risks. And your job for risk-based decision-making or, you know, to <laughs> operationalize risk is to eliminate or reduce 
those hindrances, those obstacles of meeting the goal, not the tool. People don't care about what reliability tool you use. They really care about meeting an objective. Right. Is it reliable really enough that customers are happy? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, those obstacles are the risks. Managing yeah. risk-based decision-making is eliminating those obstacles. Eliminating, uh, adapting, uh, accepting, you know, there's lots of things we can do about it. Um, yes. But it's, I think that your main message is recognize that it's, it's coming. Um, let's see, we got, Carl talked about, um, so it's all about control and name of profit is one. I think that's a carry on from our marketing point. Um, do you think chasing profit dominates risk management? There's an, another question from Carl. I, you know, it's an opportunity, that's for sure. I, I think you would agree with that, Greg, that <laughs> companies turn. How quickly did ChatGPT go to a billion-dollar company? You know, Is that a question? No, I think that's a rhetorical question. Yeah, there's, there's opportunity to make money one way or the other. Thousand people, their market cap now is over ninety billion. Yeah, it's hard to keep up. Year and a half. Um, let's see. Carl added a whole pile of stuff in the questions, but it was more of um, oh, here we go. Um, key question from Pramod: um, Can risk be understood and managed without AI? What makes AI such a great deal? Oof. So what's the question again? I, there was an editorial there and there was a question somewhere in that editorial. Yeah. So can't, I'm just going to read it. Can't risk be understood and managed without AI? What makes AI such a great deal? Uh, AI is a great deal because it anticipates it sees patterns better than we do. It can anticipate the future at a short distance because it sees the patterns in the in the background and it projects forward. Um, decision making is dangerous because uh, we we need to have a person in the middle between the decision, the autonomous decision, and the application. We, we call that, you know, the person in the middle. And um, without that human in the middle, it's going to be decision, autonomous decision, and impact or consequence. And that's very dangerous because it's unexplainable, but, often unexplainable. And Pramud added a, 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 from a book, and I know I read this a long time ago, called Atlas Shrugged. Um, yep. and, 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 talk, and ran. He talks about the opening chapter train stops because of red light and no one knows why. No one knows if the red light is there for correct reasons. And so then he talks about the hope AI doesn't lead us to uncertainty and hopelessness. And I think that goes back to your point about the black box. It's, I mean, it's a, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank with the name of the algorithm. The, the struct the machine learning systems are um, it, it's complex it's not unknowable it's complex and the when you get into sight of those systems you can see what the weighting factors are on the various links that are within the model it's it's in in of itself without context that has very little meaning so it makes it very difficult to comprehend how a particular circumstance leads to a particular result. But at the end of the day, it's all, I heard it described as the ones that do writing for you, say write a paragraph on such and such. It's doing a probability model, saying the next word is very, very likely going to be the word the. And the next word is going to be climate or whatever. It, given the context, it runs a model that says, here's the next word. That's not unknowable. It's in, but it might take us a hundred years to figure out one prompt and how that it got to its response. <laughs> We're not that fast. <laughs> so, 
it's sort of one of the final takeaways. AI needs to be parsed and AI needs to be contextualized. From the consultant's point of view, which is what we are, or product developer's point of view, um, we help people understand the questions. Right now, just like I was saying about Garvin 35 years ago, um, we don't know what <laughs> we don't know what the answers are. Uh, what we do are what we're trying to grasp is what are the questions, key questions behind AI risk. Um, two words, um, well, two thoughts: parse your AI, contextualize your AI, because it has to be segmented to the vertical that you're in, meaning the sector, the application, the use, the purpose of use. My final thoughts. Any other questions? Well, I got one admin one, and then we'll wrap it up. Is Yes, sure. Carl, uh, you'll, the Zoom, if it's working like it should, you'll receive an email saying, thanks for attending. That, along with a, a copy of the meeting announcement, basically the title and abstract, is generally accepted by different organizations for recertification purposes and, and proof of attendance and stuff like that. <laughs> that works just fine. If you're on the recorded version of this, uh, you'll have the option to take a quiz. It's a two question quiz. Um, <laughs> and that once you successfully pass that quiz, it will uh, pre create non-AI, it's just programmed, um, with your name on a certificate of attendance. And so it's very slick. Um, so there's a lot, two different ways, depending on if you're listening now in the live event or in a recorded version later. So yes, you can get a, an acknowledgement of attendance. Okay.